Good morning, everybody. Let's remain standing this morning as we read God's Word. We're going to be in Psalm 119, as Pastor Eric mentioned. Psalm 119, we're going to begin in verse 81. So you can go ahead and turn your Bibles there if you have a Bible with you. It should be on the screen as well. So Psalm 119, verse 81. I'm going to read to 88 to start this morning. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have done, dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They have almost made an end of me on earth. But I have not forgotten, forsaken your precepts. In your steadfast love, give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, as Pastor Eric mentioned, we are continuing our series on Psalm 119, a series on God's word. I mentioned this last week, we, we recognize as, as Christians and as a church, uh, we are powered, we're fueled, um, supported, and strengthened. Our foundation is on God's word and prayer, both as Christians as, and as a church. And so we're beginning this year with a series on God's word, which we're camping out in Psalm 119 for a few weeks here. And then that's going to be followed by a series on prayer, which will start in two weeks. John Calvin once called the Psalms an anatomy of the soul. What he meant was that in the Psalms, uh, we can find a mirror for every single emotion that we experience as human beings. So if you've read the Psalms, you know some are filled with, with worship, with joy, a sense of awe at God, and a sense of exuberance as, as people uh, grow and, and appreciate the great and beautiful God that they have. As you saw, at least this part of this psalm, this is not one of those places. At least not this part of the psalm. This first part of our passage is one that gives voice to a soul that has seen and has felt evil done against it. All of you know that we live in a, a deeply broken and evil world. It's not news. With people in it who do evil and broken things to one another. And at some point, all of us here have or will suffer from that. That suffering can take on all sorts of forms. It may be that someone's actively aggressive against you. It might be that uh, someone is lying against you or lying about you. Someone's using you for their own gain or their own pleasure. Maybe that you suffer as a result of neglect, or someone's selfishness. Or it just might be you are experiencing the physical suffering that comes with age and bodies that are aching for the great physician to be back here on earth. Everyone here has either suffered or is going to suffer. And this part of this psalm here is speaking into that moment, the moment of suffering, and specifically today about the unique suffering that comes from someone that's actively committing evil against you. So when that kind of suffering comes, or really any kind of serious suffering, we might know cognitively that God's word ought to be where we go. 
to, to, to found, to, to, to establish our souls, to get comfort. But it, maybe you've been told once before when you're in a moment of serious trial or suffering that what you need to do is just keep reading your Bible, which is not wrong. It's not at all wrong, but it's not necessarily helpful in that moment. It's not enough direction to actually understand how do you gain comfort? How do we found our souls? How does, how does the word, as we just saying, become the foundation of our souls when we are in the middle of a fiery trial? Well, these verses today are going to show us how Scripture speaks into that situation, that kind of suffering, and how it gives us ways to speak to God about what's being done to us, and then how that process itself, the process of speaking to God about what's happening to us, how uncovering our hearts to God begins the healing process. The Psalms particularly, again, about someone's suffering, of someone doing evil against us, but what we'll see is going to be applicable for many, many types of suffering that we experience as believers, as Christians. So I want to look at two steps today that the psalmist is going to give us to find life in the midst of trials. To find life in the midst of trials. So first, to find life in the midst of trials, speak to God about what you're experiencing. Second, to find life in the midst of trials, remember God's word is a sure anchor for your soul. Those are, let me say those again. First, two, the two steps of finding life in the midst of trials. To find life in the midst of trials, speak to God about what you're experiencing, and remember God's word is a sure anchor for your soul. So let's begin with that first point. To find life in the midst of trials, speak to God about what you're experiencing. If you were with us here last week, uh, we talked about God's blessing. Now this Psalm 119 starts way back in chapter, or verse 1. Chapter 119, verse 1, about those who walk in God's law, as he said, the psalmist said, are blessed because it is through God's law that they get to know God himself. I mentioned last week that blessed was a close synonym to happy. And if, as we just read a moment ago, this does not sound like the psalmist is experiencing that kind of blessing at this moment. He's not happy. So the question is for us, how do we square that? How do we square what he's saying in verse 1 with what's taking place here in this part of the psalm? Now, the psalms are part of a genre called wisdom literature. Perhaps you are familiar with this. Wisdom literature uh, speaks about things that are generally true most of the time. But it's going to say things that are generally true most of the time in very, very strong ways in order to kind of drive home the point, which is why we can believe simultaneously that those who walk in the law of the Lord are blessed— but also recognize that a believer's suffering is not necessarily the result of a problem with the believer, a result of a lack of faith. And sometimes Job happens. When Job happens, like it was with Job, suffering can often give us then an even deeper understanding of God himself. And therein lies the blessing. That seems to be what's happening here. So let's go back to verse 81. Read verses 81 to 83 with me once again. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. So right away we can see something is bad going on for the psalmist here. And it makes you wonder, if you look at there at verse 82, what is the promise that his eyes are longing for? Right? What promise is he, is he calling on to God? It's a good question. We're going to come back to it. Verse 83, he says, He's like a wineskin in the smoke. 
but he hasn't forgotten God's statutes. Now, we don't use wineskins today, obviously, uh, but back in this time, they would uh, dry out animal skins, often turn them inside out, and then that's what you'd carry wine in. That would kind of be a, a waterproof way to carry your carry liquids around. And, and the word picture is kind of what it sounds like. If you were to stick a skin, animal skin, in the smoke, kind of imagine one of the rafters being kind of smoked out by a fire, then eventually that, that skin gets so dried out that it begins to crack. You can't really use it anymore. So you might, that, maybe that feels familiar to you, that sense that of being, I'm being dried up and useless. I feel useless based on what's happened to me in, in my life. Reaching like feeling as though you've reached a breaking point. Let's continue. Verse 84. We start to get a picture into what kind of trial the psalmist is going through. So he asks God a question there in verse 84. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. The psalmist has people actively committing evil against him, perhaps trying to malign him, perhaps trying to undermine his faith in some way, it seems, pitfalls. And it's gotten pretty bad. He says in verse 87, they've almost made an end of me on earth. Now, it's not clear if he's saying he's almost been physically killed or if it's a spiritual kind of death he's talking about here. He's almost walked away from the faith. But either way, we can still see what he's saying. When are you going to comfort me, God? When are you going to judge these people? You see that? The psalmist is calling for his persecutor's judgment. He's doing this in the context of Scripture. He knows that God has promised to judge evildoers. And he's calling on God to keep that promise. If we read back in Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, God says this. I'm going to read it in the NLT since the language kind of helps, I think, see some of the force of these words. Speaking of people who harm God's people and Israelites who stop following God, he says this, Deuteronomy 32, 35. Again, God speaking. I will take revenge. I will pay them back. In due time, their feet will slip. Their day of disaster will arrive, and their destiny will overtake them. So the psalmist wants to know, when is that going to happen? When are their feet going to slip? Right? My disaster is here. When's their disaster going to arrive? And he wants to do something about himself. You see it in the end of verse 87. They've almost made an end of me on earth, but I have not forgotten your precepts. What he's saying there, it seems, is, God, I haven't, I haven't taken revenge because you said, God, that you will. You've said that vengeance is to be left to you. Curious if you've ever felt that way. I know, I know some of you know what it's like to have something evil done to you by another person or people. And so you know what that does to a soul. It can make you angry with no place to direct your anger. It can leave you confused about why this is happening, what caused it, perhaps regretful, wondering what you could have done to change what, what took place, or ashamed or embarrassed desperate feeling of being both furious and powerless at the same time. And you can be left feeling like you either want to put on the boxing gloves or you just want to sit on the bathroom floor and hope you never have to get up again. I'm curious, does that seem familiar to you? 
And even if you've not experienced this particular kind of evil that the psalmist is talking about here, you almost certainly know what it's like to have a trial that happens to you that is totally out of your control. You have no ability to fix. And if you don't know what that is like, you will at some point in your life. That is a guarantee of living on earth. At some point, you will know what it feels like to sit on the floor in that way. So what do we do when trials hit? The psalmist here is going to show us that first step. The test step that he takes is telling God and being honest about what he says, which is not natural. I think either part of that, either telling God or being honest with him. But that's got what God wants us to do. Tremper Longman's an uh, Old Testament scholar. He makes a really interesting observation about the Psalms in general. He says, if God's encouraging us to bring our complaints to him, our frustrations, our despair, then what is the difference between what's happening in the Psalms and what happened in the book of Numbers? Now, if you remember the book of Numbers, the Israelites spent a lot of time complaining. A lot of time complaining. And the result of that was the earth opening up to swallow some of them, God sending snakes to bite them, What's the difference? The main difference is the direction of the complaints. God wants you to tell him about what's going on in your life rather than blame him for what's happening to you and then grumble about it to others. Tell God what's happening. Direct your complaints to him. And then there's the being honest part. And I, I, oddly, I think this is harder than the first part, telling God. I think being honest is, is, is a more, bit more difficult it can be hard when you're in a situation like this to feel like you can actually pray what you want to pray. It doesn't feel very Christian to say, I want that person to be judged, God. I want his destiny to overtake him, as the NLT ominously puts it. But it's right here. The psalmist is asking God when he will judge the people who are harming him. So do you feel like you can do that? Feel like you can actually tell God what you're feeling when you are receiving persecution, when someone's done evil against you, feel as though you can give him without any varnish of false piety what you actually think, what you actually want to happen to that person. Reminding God, going so far to remind God that he's promised to judge people who do evil. That's what God wants to hear from you. He's quite literally given you the words right here to say. So don't be afraid to tell God you want him to judge people who have hurt you. Don't be afraid to tell God you want him to remain faithful to save his children and to bring vengeance on the wicked and then ask him for his help. Now, this is not to say that anger or hatred towards others is where our hearts ought to stay. It's often where our hearts start when someone commits evil against us. And as we use the patterns of prayer that these psalms give to us, that's when something remarkable begins to happen. Because Calvin says right here, Calvin's not right here, but Calvin says, talking about the, the psalms, after we've seen ourselves in the mirror of the psalms, we've, we've observed our heart and what's being said here, and we've followed the pattern of giving those things to God, opening them up to God, that's when the Lord begins the healing process. There was a study done several years ago that showed that a particular kind of uh, UV light had a really extraordinary effect on skin wounds. Maybe you've heard about this. Uh, if you have the right kind of light and the right kind of dosage on a skin wound, what happens is, as the researchers put it, it will uh, 
See how the, it, it will augment the healing cascade. <laughs> in other words, it, it kind of speeds up the healing. Right? It causes all sorts of good things to happen in the skin when that kind of light is applied to the wound. Same kind of thing here. In order for the healing process to begin, for the healing cascade to begin, the wound and all that it has caused in your heart and your soul has to be opened up to the source of spiritual light. It has to be opened up to God. That's how he begins the healing process in your own heart. And the psalmist ends the stanza by asking God for life, appealing to God's steadfast love to give him life so he can continue keeping the testimonies of God's mouth. He says that in, there in 88. In your steadfast love, give me life. So we kind of leave this stanza with the psalmist. It, it almost seems just sitting on the floor. The curtain kind of seems to drop. But it's not the end of the, the psalmist stories we're going to see. God's going to answer that prayer for life. That's going to take us to our second point. To find life in the midst of trials, remember God's word is a sure anchor for your soul. So let's keep reading. We're going to read 89 through 96 now. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. By your appointment they stand this day, for all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours. Save me. For I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. It's quite the shift, right? From that first stanza to this stanza. But it's purposeful. And this is still in the context of persecution. We can see that in these verses. But the scene is much, much different. That the psalmist is kind of raising our eyes, right? Raising our eyes from the floor, as it were, up to the heavens. Now, as dire as this, the first verses sounded, 81 to 88, it was clear the psalmist never stopped trusting God. He said this in those, in those early verses, My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. When will you comfort me? I have not forgotten your statutes. When will you judge those who persecute me? All your commandments are sure. Help me. In your steadfast love, give me life. So his trust in God never gives out. But if you're going to trust God in this way, like this in the middle of trials, then you have to know without any doubt that God's going to do what he promises to do. So there's two testimonies the psalmist is going to give us in this last half of our passage today. Two testimonies. And the first one is that creation itself is testifying that God doesn't change, that his promises are sure. And then second, the psalmist's experience itself is a testament to the fact that your heart can change with God's help. The first thing he says in the stanza is that God's word is it's firmly fixed in the heavens. Now what he means here most likely is that God's word doesn't change because it's not earthly. It's not, it's not, it's not a, the, the source of God's word is not on earth. The source of God's word is in heaven. It's God himself, so it doesn't change. Now that is, it's worth taking a moment to ponder. So our human experience is so subject to change, it's really difficult for us to get our mind around something that can't change, that never changes at all. 
All, right? all of you are going to be different next week if you come back to church here. All of you are different than you were last week on Sunday. Everything about you is changing all of the time. But God doesn't change. He's the same today as he was last week. He's the same today as he was when the psalmist wrote these words. He's going to be the same today as he will be when Jesus returns. That's what theologians call God's immutability. He doesn't change. It's really important for lots of reasons to understand that God doesn't change. One, it's important because it's true. We want to know true things about God. But it's also important because it means that we are able to rely on God when he makes a promise to us. If I were to promise any of you today that you could always count on me to make sure you had housing from this day till you die, your response would probably be to chuckle a bit, at least in your head. It's a nice sentiment. Thanks. But you know that I can't keep that promise. Right? I can't keep that promise because I don't know if I'm going to be alive tomorrow. What if I had to change my mind and decide I want to give housing to somebody else? I like them better. You can't count on me to make a promise like that because I'm a human, and human beings change. We change our minds, we get old, we get sick, and we die. It happens to every single one of us here. But God does not change. And so our ability to trust his promises to us relies on this doctrine that he will never change. And that's what the psalmist is praising there. If you saw that in verse 90, he said that God has established the earth and his unchanging nature means he's faithful to what he promises. He's faithful to all generations of those who follow him. His faithfulness endures and has been enduring from Adam to Noah to Ruth to a man like David all through history until now. So when our circumstances get difficult, it's very easy for them to kind of become all that we can see. Right, all that we can think about is what's going on in our lives, those trials. So one of the places the psalmist here is taking comfort is quite literally by looking up, looking up at the heavens, looking up at the stars, looking at the earth that God has established to remind him of how God doesn't change. When Megan, uh, my wife and I were first married, Megan worked for this Christian conference that would fly her to Europe once a year, which sounds far more glamorous than it actually was. But uh, after one of her trips, we got to go hiking uh, in some mountains there. Um, and we got to, we spent an entire day with what felt like hiking straight up, <laughs> basically directly uh, vertical. And once we got to the top, uh, we could see around us, and we were surrounded by mountains that you almost couldn't see the top of because they were in the clouds. And I will never forget that feeling of looking around at these, these majestic mountains that were just massive massive and realizing that we were very close to the ground despite having felt like killed ourselves to get to that point but God's creation has this way of making us feel small and brief and finite it's a delightful feeling it's an awesome feeling God's creation does that for us when we lift our eyes long enough to see it it reminds us how small we are it reminds us of how powerful the God is that we serve how permanent he is. Those mountains aren't going anywhere. That kind of solid immovability is a reminder to us of God's own immovable faithfulness. So as you look up, as you have opportunities to look at creation, use them to remember that the same God who established the earth and who's holding all of that creation together, the one who doesn't change, is the same God that has promised that he will bring justice that he will bring you home to him. 
So as much as you can, when you are in the middle of trials, use creation as a way to help your soul ground itself on God himself, to help, help hang on to God as an anchor for your soul in times of trial. So in verse 92, that's, that's the testimony of creation. Verse 92, the psalmist kind of flips to giving his own testimony to God's faithfulness. So if you see the shift in 92, he says, he says this, If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. So if you remember what he asked in verse 88, he asked, In your steadfast love, give me life, that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. And now what he's saying here, in 92 and 93, he's saying that God did it. He gave him life. He's giving us his testimony here of how he opened up his heart to God and how God responded by giving him life. So it's true for this psalmist. It means it's true for us too. When we use the words and patterns that the psalms give us to, to open up our anger and our frustration and our despair to God, what God does is he begins to transform what's in our hearts and turn it into something different. That's when the healing cascade begins. So the psalmist can say that I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. That's not a magic incantation, but the psalmist keeps coming back again to the place where God gives him life. It's, it's in his word right here. Because this is where we learn about, remember that we can, we can dwell on God's testimonies. This is where we get to learn about God's promises to us, to know what he's promised to you. So the psalmist ends the stanza in verse 96 by saying, I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. So one commentator said this could easily sum up all of Ecclesiastes right here. The ways of the world, all the perfections of the world have limits, but God's commands cover everything that we need for life. Now you likely noticed <clears throat> as we were going through the psalm, that the psalmist's reliance on God took the form of his reliance on God's word. Did you notice that? All throughout this psalm, he's been saying that. I hope, 81, I hope in your word, 86, all your commandments are sure. 87, I have not forgot, forsaken your precepts. Your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished. I will never forget your precepts. I have sought your precepts. I consider your testimonies. And then here your commandment is exceedingly broad. So all those words the psalmists are using to talk about God's word. God's word. His dependence on God is coming through his dependence on God's word because this is how he knows what God has said to him. This is where God has revealed himself and his ways to the psalmist. Now for us, we have God's written word right here, the Bible, and it shows us something about God. It shows us that the word itself became flesh. Jesus himself became flesh. And now we rely on the one who came to show us the Father. That's what the author of Hebrews meant when he wrote this in Hebrews 6, 19 and 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. When trials come, we rely on the Word made flesh. We rely on Jesus. Jesus is the anchor of our souls. He came to show us what God is like, to bring us to God himself. 
right? God wants to bring us, when we are in trials like this, God wants to bring us from the point of feeling like we are in a living death, bringing us from that place to eternal life. And he did that by sending Jesus the other direction. And he sent Jesus. Jesus came from <laughs> the heavens, right? eternal life, to death for our sake. It helps us because it tells us that there is, there is no pit that we can find ourselves in where Jesus has not already gone to that point and then deeper so that he could bring you back out and give you life. He knows exactly what it's like to long for salvation from persecution and pain. Jesus knows exactly what it's like to have someone's evil actions suck him dry of life. He knows what it's like to desperately wish his trial would be over so he doesn't have to endure it any longer. He knows what it's like to be persecuted with falsehood. He knows what it's like to have wicked people make an end of him on earth. But that's what Jesus chose to do. That's what he chose to do so that he could come down into the pit with you and give you his life. So if you don't know Jesus, if you're here and you're not sure you know this Savior, haven't chosen to follow him, this is what he offers. It's what he offers to all those who follow him. Salvation for your soul, an anchor for times of trial. And frankly, anyone who's lived long enough knows that none of us are ever just victims of life. And I mentioned David earlier. David is a prolific author of many psalms about what it's like to be a victim of people trying to kill him. He's also an author of psalms of what it's like to acknowledge when he was the one who's doing the persecuting, the one who committed evil. That's all of us. All of us are sufferers, and all of us are sinners. And what Jesus offers is salvation that is complete, both the promise to forgive us of how we've sinned and the promise to then bring us to eternal life. You may not be in a trial at this moment, but there will come a point in life when that will happen. That is a guarantee of life here on earth. God wants to hear from you when that time comes to be your anchor, the anchor for your soul. He's given us words here in the Psalms to use when those moments come. And if we can open our hearts to the Lord in this way, when those times come, then he will heal, carry us through, and transform what's taking place there in our hearts. That's the power of God's word at work in our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you've given us psalms like this one. We're grateful that you show us how you want us to talk to you, that there's no aspect of our hearts that you don't want us to tell you about. Jesus, it's comforting to know that you know exactly what it's like to go through trials to suffer, to have someone do something deeply selfish and evil against you, and that you invite us to bring those things to you, to have them transformed from death to life. Father, I ask that you'd be with those here who are in trials right now, who may be in the midst of, of this feeling of being in a stormy sea. Lord, I ask that you would give them words from your word to use with you and that you would begin the process of not only healing their hearts but being the anchor for their souls in the midst of that storm. For those here who will experience these things, Father, ask they to remember where to come when those times come. 
Jesus, we thank you. Thank you for going the other direction for us. Thanks for coming from the heavens to the chaos and death of earth so that you could bring us to life. We pray these things in your name.